As we take up our study of Proverbs 21, verse 1, we also meditate upon Lord's Day 10 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 10, page 525 in the Book of Praise. Beloved, we're confronted with these questions there in Lord's Day chapter 10. Question and answer 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And question and answer 28. What benefit, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? The answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Our catechism lesson for this afternoon. Beloved people, saints of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a culture that loves celebrity, that deifies status and power. But congregation, that's because we're wired to look up, to search for something that's greater than ourselves. We're wired to know that there's something bigger out there, something far more powerful than we are by ourselves. We know, as believers, that person to be the one and only triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only sovereign God of the universe. And contrary to what other religions and people believe, he is not just a force. He's a personal being. He's not just able to relate to his creation congregation, but he intentionally relates himself to his creation. When I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of the interaction between the beavers, Susan and Lucy, when they talked about Aslan and the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Susan says, I, of Aslan, she says, "I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver butts in and she says, Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, says Lucy. And then Mr. Beaver interrupts. And he says the famous line, probably one of the most famous lines in that entire series. Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Congregation, you you see, you must know that our God is not a mysterious, impersonal force of nature. But neither is he a far-off watchmaker in the sky who's got the swirl going wound up like a watch, if you will but now has nothing to do with it. No, beloved, our God indeed is all-powerful. He is not safe. 
but we can rejoice that he is good, that he is for us, not against us. Not only is he good, but he's good to us, to you and me. That is good news for us. He is the all-powerful God, the one who created time, the one who created the world, the one who designed the laws of physics that hold this world together, that govern the universe. But the beautiful thing is that in all of this, whatever happens in this world, whatever happens to you and I as we travel through this world, as we go about the walk of life before his face, all things are not just in his hand, but they are in his good and his fatherly hand. Nothing happens by chance. Even the most powerful people in the world, kings, prime ministers, presidents, emperors, even terrorists, military regimes, children, even school bullies, hostile co-workers, difficult colleagues, as our text says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, Beloved, their heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he will. And so as we contemplate this verse and these themes this afternoon, our theme as we look at the text will be this. God's providence assures us. God's providence assures us that all things come not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. God's providence assures us that all things come to us not by chance, but by our God's fatherly hand. We'll meditate upon this under two headings or two points. First, knowing or describing God's fatherly hand. And second, living in God's fatherly hand. Knowing, describing what God's fatherly hand looks like. And then our joy of living in light of that. So then first, our knowing of God's fatherly hand, describing it, understanding it, coming to terms with it. We know many of the Proverbs were written by Solomon. And children, remember what a great man Solomon was. He was wiser than any king who came before him or earthly king who came after him. The Lord himself says this in 1 Kings. But even in all his wisdom, all his splendor, all his power, his authority, and his riches, Selma knew that all things, even his own reign, and the reign of every other powerful person in the world, serves the purposes of Almighty God. Yes, we know that all things go according to God's plan, according to his sovereign will. We memorize these things and are taught them from a young age. But the word picture here in Proverbs 21 is a, a bit different, and I would argue a bit more helpful than what we perhaps see in it at first blush. But we read here in Proverbs 21 verse 1, as the word streams has with it, in Hebrew, connotations of canals, or precisely laid and engineered channels meant to direct water two fields, to make them flourish. What we're talking about here when we, we read of streams of water, our irrigation channels put here, put in place by a wise and a knowledgeable caretaker, farmer. 
So when we read of streams flowing, we're not just talking about a, a, a river meandering to and fro at its own whims, randomly going back and forth. The banks of the river of God's people's lives and all lives are engineered, planned, ordained by your heavenly Father. Our God is so completely in control that all things and all actions of men are governed by him. So when Solomon brings this idea up, he had the imagery of Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 12 in his mind. There the Lord told the people of Israel as they were entering the promised land, he, he said this, For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like gardens of vegetables. But the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, and everything in between. What the Lord was saying to his people as they entered into the promised land was that they were entering into a land that he himself prepared and cared for. When they were still slaves in Egypt, watering the land was difficult to do. Yes, they were in the Nile Delta, that was there. But water to get to the farmland had to be dug in trenches by the slaves. And perhaps many of the Israelites had to do that hard work. But those days would be over. And Canaan water would be plentiful. The Lord himself would care for the land and water it. And as Solomon reflects, they would be a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He would turn it wherever he wills. God was irrigating his field of harvest when Israel entered into the promised land. And Solomon wisely understood that the same hand of God guiding, was guiding the hearts of even the most powerful people on the face of the world. Perhaps the most famous example of this, especially in the Old Testament, is that of Pharaoh as Israel left Egypt. In Exodus 4, verse 21, the Lord says this to Moses. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But then the Lord says this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Here, Pharaoh was a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Well, in, a similar way, in a similar way, when the Lord pronounced judgment upon Judah centuries later, pronounces judgment upon Judah and Assyria, he says this in Isaiah chapter 10, and I encourage you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 10. The Lord says this in Isaiah 10, verse 5 and following. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take the spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But notice how the Lord continues in verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, 
but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. The Assyrian king would have his own agenda, an agenda filled with anger and hatred, opposition to God and his people. But even his own evil actions were water in the hand of the Lord. The Assyrian king would find that the Lord turns him whenever he wills. He had his intentions, the Lord had his own. The Assyrian king filled with pride, anger, and rage, and the Lord using that for judgment. Well, furthermore, if we look at our Bibles once again and we turn further in the book of Isaiah, we're reminded of our God's providential governance, not just over the king, but over all things. Look at Isaiah 41. We read this in Isaiah 41, verses 2 through 4. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up the nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? Who is the he? Who is the one who is speaking? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The one who stirs up those from the east, who brings victory, who brings defeat. Our congregation, think of Artaxerxes at the time of Ezra. He sends a letter to the people of Jerusalem. He says, whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. And he further promised whatever else is required for the house of God, which it falls to you to which it falls to you provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. So as the people of God begin to rebuild his temple, even the riches and the treasure of a pagan king are water in the hands of the Lord meant to restore his temple to provide for his people. And beloved, the most magnificent way that the Lord exhibited this sovereign care was in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ in the greatest ill, the greatest evil that this world has ever seen or committed. Pilate could not understand who Jesus was. But he wanted to save place, save face with his Roman superiors. He wanted to keep peace with these restless Jews. Even in the interaction that Christ has with Pilate, we can see this attitude that he has. Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Our sovereign God used the fear and the self-preservation instinct of Pilate and the wicked anger of God's own people to have Christ crucified in the cross of Calvary. What man meant for evil, God meant for ultimate good. He meant it for the salvation of the elect from their sins. And so thinking of all these different characters, the, the kings, the princes, the people of power, the commentator Kidner says this, these men are all examples of tyrants who in pursuing their chosen courses flooded 
or fertilized God's field as he chose. Evil men, pagan men, tyrants even. God uses them to fertilize, to water his fields. His will will be done. God so rules all things that even the bending of every blade of grass in the breeze, the falling of each individual leaf at the fall time, every unique snowflake that falls in the window does so at his call. It does so at his command. What we're really getting at here is God's omnipresence and his omnipotence, the fact that he is both everywhere present and all-powerful. He's omniscient, all-knowing. Everything from the actions of the most powerful leaders in the world to the photosynthesis that takes place in the blades of grass. All happens under his guidance. Congregation, that is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand all things. The stars in the heavens, the clouds in the sky, the sands of the seashore, the creatures in the depths of the sea, and beloved, you and I and our stations in life. All things are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns them wherever he wills. God is never the author of evil, but he is always, always, always sovereign over it. So much so that we could confess what we just said in question and answer 27 of the catechism. God so governs all things that rain and drought, fruitful and years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things. Come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That leaves us with that big question. So what? To know in my mind, God holds all things in his hand. God controls all things. He's working all things out. So what? What does that mean for you and me in our own lives? Well, we secondly this afternoon look at not just understanding, acknowledging God's fatherly hand, but how we live in the care of God's fatherly hand, what that looks like in our day-to-day life. And question and answer 28 of the catechism outlines that godly response beautifully for you and for me. It says this, that we can be patient in adversity, that we can be thankful when things go well, that we can be hopeful for a glorious future, And so first on that patience, why can we be patient? Or as I said, more fully as question and answer 28 says, patient in adversity. Kids, what does the word adversity mean? It's a a big word that we don't use terribly often, but it means things that are hard, things that are difficult. How can we be patient when things are difficult, when everything seems stacked against us, when everything has gone wrong? How can we be patient? Why can we be patient? Well, how would we live if we didn't have the promise that God is working all things for our good? How would we live if we didn't know that God was upholding all things from the galaxies 
to the blades of grass, to the sparrows, and to the lilies? Well, one of two things. We, we'd either panic, we'd try to make our own way, we'd fight tooth and nail, we, we'd live in a dog-eat-dog world. Well, it's as if that's what we find all around us. Or the other option would be to fall into deep darkness, depression, despair. But again, we see that all around us as well. Pride, arrogance, despair. But for one who has witnessed the greatest evil in the world, the death of the innocent and righteous Son of God, that event turned the greatest blessing that the world has ever known. How can we not but confess in rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty indeed, all things come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. We've seen what God has done. God redeemed you. God redeemed me who didn't deserve his mercy, who didn't deserve his grace. As Paul says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Walking according to the course of this world. Walking according to the powers of Satan, Paul says. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. How can it be patient in adversity and difficulty? Because God used the most horrendous and unjust circumstances in the death of his son to save me, a sinner. Just as the Israelites leaving the Egypt into their entering into the promised land, just as Ezra and the Jews received riches to furnish the temple, just as the death of Christ brought us salvation. We know that our own hardships, our own times of difficulty, our own times of adversity, are water in the hand of the Lord. He will lead and move them wherever he will. But our God doesn't just have the power to do these things. There are plenty of powerful rulers, powerful people in our world, but they do evil things with their power. They serve themselves with their power. But not our God. Not only is he powerful and sovereign, he is good. He's working all things together for our good and for our salvation. Just like how we remembered from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, what Mr. Beaver said of Aslan, of course he isn't safe. Of course he's not safe. But he is good. He's the king. And so as believers, as servants of the Most High God, we can be patient in adversity, patient when things are difficult. But we can also be thankful then in prosperity. And this is probably the easiest one for us to forget, the easiest one to glaze over, the easiest one to cast to the side. Everybody runs to God when things go poorly. Lord, save me. It's a classic movie or TV trope that I'm sure you have seen many times. The plane's about to crash. Impending doom is about to strike. And, and what happens? The characters, even the unbelieving ones, they, they start to recite the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven. That prayer that they learned long ago when they were little. They don't believe a word of it anymore. But now that things are going bad, I'll reach out to the Lord. 
we easily forget about God when things are going well. We have a tendency to credit ourselves for life's good gifts. But James in James 1 verses 17 through 18 reminds us that all good gifts are from heaven. But James says even more than that. He speaks of God's will and providence there. If you would, turn with me to James chapter 1. The book of James immediately precedes 1 Peter and it comes right after Hebrews. We read this in James chapter 1, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Thankfulness, congregation, shows itself in humility and patience, in praising God in gratitude for all his good and perfect gifts, in kindness, in gentleness, in generosity towards others. We love because he first loved us, as John 4, 1 John 4, 19 says. You see that humility and that thankfulness then prepares us for those times of adversity. When we can acknowledge what God has so graciously given us in all the blessings of life, or prepared for when things go wrong. Prepared for when things are difficult. When we face deep adversity. And that finally then leads us to our hope. Our confidence. We can be patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. And for the future we can have good confidence in our God and Father. But again when that rubber meets the road, what does that confidence look like in your life and in mine? It's a boldness in facing life's circumstances, whether hardship and adversity or with thankfulness and prosperity. Beloved, ask yourself this, especially those of us who are parents, a good test for how we process these things. How is it that you talk to your children about things going on in our world? the difficult and the terrible things that are going on in our world. With fear and with trembling, with, with despair and with doubt, or with eager anticipation that nothing will separate you or your children or any believer from our Savior's love. You see, congregation, one of the joys of being a believer is knowing and to be able to see the world as it truly is. That's the problem with so many Unbelievers are trying to understand the world and to put it into context, and they can't. And so they panic. They don't know what to do. But we're not surprised by adversity and struggle. In fact, Jesus, our Lord, said, struggle will come. It's part of following in his footsteps. But we don't stop there because we know precisely how the story began, where it's at, and how that story will end. Kids, think about it this way. You all have a favorite book, don't you? A book from your childhood that mom used to read to you over and over again. Mom, read it again. And you memorized probably almost every word from that book. 
You could be thinking of what's on the next page before she even gets there. You could tell her the ending before she finishes the story. Even when you're reading about the trial and the difficulties that the characters are going through, you know the happy ending. You see, that's the kind of hope that we have as believers. That's the kind of knowledge, sure knowledge that we have. We know the full story of history. We know that it has a glorious and a happy ending. Because we know that all things are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns them wherever he wills. And he's told us what will happen in the end. He's told us that he is coming again to make all things new. To give us life everlasting with him. All things are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns them wherever he will. And so therefore, we can take those words from the catechism on our lips. We can confess them and believe them and live them every day. We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. That is our lives. Sun up to sun down, birth to death. The Lord promises in Psalm 121 that he watches our going out and our coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He will never leave us or forsake us. Do you know him? Are you confident in him? Are you filled with that patience and adversity? Overflowing with joy when things are going well. Filled with a bright hope for the future. That is our hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you have given us in the gospel. We thank you that you hold all things in your hands. That you will never leave us or forsake us. That your steadfast love endures forever. That your mercies are new every morning that you take care of the, the sparrows and you feed them, that you clothe the lilies of the valley, that not a hair can fall from our heads without the will of our Father in heaven. And so, O oh Lord, give us that patience in difficulty. Give us that thankfulness when things are going well. And Lord, continue to build within us that boldness and that hope, that confidence in the future. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with the words of Psalm 118. We'll sing stanzas 1 and 8. 1 and 8 of Psalm 118. Mm -hmm. 